Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in sections 106, 107, and 108. Probably the most of our time is going to be spent in section 107. But we're going to be really careful because 107 is kind of the handbook for priesthood quorums. And we recognize that half the people listening to this podcast really aren't concerned about priesthood quorums and how priesthood quorums operate. And so we're going to focus on those things that apply to all of us. Those of you who are presidents of a quorum and you want to learn your duty, or those of you who are interested in how the quorums relate to each other, study 107. Some wonderful stuff in there, but Mike and I are going to focus our attention on kind of the bigger picture, more universal truths that apply to all of our lives in section 107. But let's jump into 106. I had a conversation this week with someone I deeply respect who confessed that as a child, he did not read the scriptures very often and even doesn't today because the scriptures make him feel guilty. And I think that's a common occurrence that we believe that the scriptures are saying that God expects us to be perfect. And the more we study this perfection expectation, the more we feel like we don't measure up which is why I think it's so valuable to focus on the realistic God that we worship and his realistic expectations of us. Right. So in section 106, verse 7, he's talking to Warren Cowdery, I will have mercy on him, notwithstanding the vanity of his heart. In other words, God is very realistic with his expectations of us. He does not expect us to be perfect before we qualify for his help and blessings. In fact, it's the journey to perfection that he's interested in. I want to walk with you as you obtain that. So in spite of your perfections, which is why I love that verse, I will be merciful, notwithstanding the vanity of his heart. There are things that need to be corrected in all of our lives, but it doesn't keep God out of our life. He wants to be a participant. In section 108, he says the same thing to Lyman Sherman. Let's jump to verse 1. He says, Your sins are forgiven you because you have obeyed my voice in coming up hither this morning to receive counsel of whom I have appointed. Now, again, we might have a tendency to think you have to do all these things and be perfect in order for your sins to be forgiven. But notice what the Lord says in the next verse. Let your soul be at rest concerning your spiritual standing and resist no more my voice. Has Lyman Sherman been perfect? The Lord suggests that you have resisted my voice. Verse 3, he says, Be more careful henceforth in observing your vows. The Lord acknowledges that Lyman Sherman has not been perfect, but he's trying. He wants to move forward. He invites the Lord into his life. And I just, I want to scream out every time there's an opportunity in the Doctrine and Covenants to remind people that the expectation is not perfection alone. The expectation is get Jesus into your life and he will walk you to that destination with a great deal of help on his part. That's what I read in the scriptures. 
not the expectation that I'm only going to help you if you're perfect. Rather, it's if you come to me, I will help you become perfect. And that's a long journey. So let your soul be at rest. Do better. Resist no more, but do better. I just really like that concept that the Lord is not expecting us to be perfect in order to receive help from him. I think that text in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, be therefore perfect, even as my Father which is in heaven is perfect. Perfect, in the Greek, it's the plural, teleoi, is to be finished or to be completed. And I think sometimes because it's translated the way it is in the English, be therefore perfect, we look at that as it's an imperative thing. I'm telling you, go do this. But if it was an imperative, go and do this, go and be it, in the Greek, it would say este, but the word is estestha. And so what Jesus is saying, in my opinion, you all will be perfect. That's the correct way to say it. That's so, the destination our team is headed to. Join the team. Jesus is saying, I will make you all the teleoi. I will make you all complete. Estestha, you all will be perfect. I'm going to take you there. And I think sometimes, especially in the Latter-day Saint culture, we sometimes beat ourselves up and we see the ideal and we see where we fall short. And yet these are both experiences of real people and the Lord's showing him the mercy and he's showing him grace. And he says, but I see where you sit. And by the way, what I love about these sections, Bryce, is in 106 and 108 and both times the Lord's like, I know who you are. Like, I know you, you can't hide from me. Right. So as a reference on this, I was watching The Chosen and the story of Nathaniel, right, who's without guile that's under the fig tree, the way they portrayed him was he really just lost his job and he was so devastated. It's so good. So he's just crying out to God. And then when he meets Jesus, Jesus is like, bro, I saw you under the fig tree. And that connection that he makes, that's what I see here is where God says to Warren, I know you. And despite your imperfection, I'm going to give you grace. I'm going to give you mercy. And I see who you are. And you can't hide from that. And I really do think, Bryce, back to your friend that you talked about where he struggled reading the scriptures. I think sometimes if we look at these people as real people and realize they are all just, they're struggling. They're, they're doing their best, certainly, and they have weaknesses. And especially of all people in the Doctrine and Covenants who seems to get corrected, it's the First Presidency and specifically Joseph. Joseph is corrected. And Joseph learns lessons. We'll talk about this when we get to 121. But at the end of the Missouri War, Joseph pours out his heart to God. And in 121, he says, we have learned by sad experience because Joseph says, okay, I can do better. I can be better. And yet he still was a prophet. So this is beautiful. And I think it gives us a pause to just relax, take a deep breath. Don't stop in your discipleship. But what I mean by relax is it kind of relieves some of that tension that binds some of us when we read some of these texts and interpret them. For example, that Matthew 5, 48, that it's not an imperative. You all will be perfect. I'm going to take you there. Yeah. Now, there are a couple things that we can and should do. Let's go back to section six to Warren Cowdery. So I'm not perfect. I know that. And I know that God knows it. But I can invite God into my life in spite of my imperfections. Now, the Lord says something that can be misconstrued in verse 6. He says, There was great joy in heaven when my servant Warren bowed to my scepter and separated himself from the crafts of men. Now, in this day where we hold so tightly onto our liberties and anyone who's trying to take our liberties away 
it just riles up all sorts of feelings. You might read that and say, oh, no, this is making God a dictator. God is acting like this power-hungry leader who says, I need you to bow before me. And that's sometimes how we read it, that there was joy in heaven when Warren bowed to my scepter. But let me invite you to see that a little bit differently and not jump so quickly to this dictator image. The idea of bowing to God's scepter and separating ourselves from the crafts of man is as old as time, and it is at the very heart of the gospel. There is only one thing that is mine to give God. One and one thing only. If I give him my time, I am only giving him what he gave me. If I give him my money, I am only giving him what he gave me. There is only one thing that is uniquely mine. He can't take it away. If he takes it away from me, he ceases to be God. That makes that one thing the only thing that's truly mine, and that is my agency, my will. If God takes that away, he ceases to be God. Everything else he's lent to me. In the Old Testament, the Lord asked them to offer animal sacrifices. And the whole idea behind an animal sacrifice is that, yes, we need to remember Jesus. This animal represents Jesus that's being sacrificed for our good. But this animal also represents the animal in us. So after the atonement, the Lord ends animal sacrifices. And in 3 Nephi chapter 9, he says, I'm going to replace it with something else. So today we do not offer animals as a sacrifice. What we offer is a broken heart and a contrite spirit, which is a real fancy way of simply saying, you need to break your pride that thinks you can do it on your own or that you're supposed to do it on your own or that you're better off without God's help. And sometimes it's not just that, it's you're better off with other people's help. That's what marriage is all about. Yeah. As human beings, because we're wired for connection, when we break down those barriers of pride and we soften our heart and we just say, I need you, it bonds us together in love. Yeah. So he says to Warren Cowdery, There was joy in heaven when you bowed to my scepter, meaning every single time we yield our natural man and we let go of our pride and we offer that animal inside of us up and the resistance we have to God. I love how the anti-Nephi-Lehi's buried their weapons of rebellion. And it's that same idea all over. When I give God my agency, when I say to him, I choose to follow. I had another wonderful conversation this week with a student of mine. The question I had asked the class was, what is evidence that you have grown spiritually? And she came up to me and said, the greatest evidence that I've grown is that I was born and raised in the church, and I always did these things kind of out of obligation, that this is what we do. We obey out of obligation. But now I choose to. I want to obey. I choose to. And I think that's bowing before his scepter. That's offering him a broken heart. That's that simple act of saying, Lord, I have every right to choose for myself, and I choose to follow thee. I give you my agency. I choose to follow wherever you send me. Now, here's the wonderful thing that I want to add to all that. 
Warren bowed to his scepter. So God says, bow to my scepter. Now, where else do we find the word scepter in the Doctrine and Covenants? I want you to think about that. Most of you know the Doctrine and Covenants well enough to know where that word appears. It appears in Joseph's letter from Liberty Jail that the Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion and thy scepter, an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth. The next place after this section, the next time the Lord uses the word scepter, he's talking about my scepter, that my scepter will be an unchanging scepter of righteousness. So I think here's what I would say to anyone who is reading section 106 and kind of has this idea of, oh, God is a dictator. God is asking us to bow before him like a dictator would ask that. God is saying, if you are willing to grant me the one thing I can't take away, if you are willing to grant me your agency and do what I do, then God takes that scepter of his that we just bowed to and hands it to us. He gives us his scepter. He doesn't beat us over the head with it. He hands it to us. I love that idea that this is a kind God, that if you are willing to follow me, I will give you everything that I have. If we bow before his scepter and say to him, I give you the one thing that's mine to give. I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I give you my allegiance. I give you my agency. I am thy servant and I will follow thee. In other words, I don't want to be like everyone else. I want to be like thee, Lord. And I grant you my heart. I bow before your scepter. If that's my gift to God, you know what God's gift to me is? His scepter. I claim his scepter of righteousness and that he blesses me abundantly. That's the difference between God and a dictator. Is a dictator says, bow before me and then beats me with his scepter. God says, bow before my scepter and then hands it to me. Excellent. So... If you're interested in some of the historical things about who was Warren Cowdery, because he was Oliver's brother, and the same thing with Lyman Sherman. If you want to know more about who he was and, and what he did, go to the show notes and check those out. Now, section 107 of the Doctrine and Covenants, this section was probably received over multiple times. And historically, there's a lot happening here because the Quorum of the Twelve is organized on February 14th, 1835. And a lot of the things in this revelation were given to the Quorum of the Twelve to help them understand their duty, what they're to do. Even in the section heading, it even talks about that the historical records affirm that most of the things between verse 60 and 100 were probably given to Joseph as far back as 1831. And so just know that this is a composite revelatory text. And section 107 has so many things that you can really get lost in the details. So the big picture when I teach 107, Bryce, and this is just my approach, is I talk about two things, the understanding and the idea of hierarchy and what that word means and why hierarchy matters in the church. And the second thing is, what is the purpose of the priesthood? 
and I always do that first. And then I draw an outline on the board and I say, okay, here's all these things. We have this much time left in class. What do you guys want to talk about? That's my approach as a teacher. But for the purposes of this podcast, I just want to make sure that we talk about those two things, hierarchy and what the purpose of the priesthood is. Well, let's start with that. What's the purpose of the priesthood? So before we actually talk about it, let's show it. The Lord is really good at showing. He is so good at illustrating all of these things. The Book of Mormon does not say repentance is. There's very few verses in the Book of Mormon that describe repentance or tell us how to repent. But the Book of Mormon is filled from beginning to end on examples of how to repent. So the Lord says, hey, by the way, do you know that the real name of the priesthood is not Melchizedek? That's kind of how he's beginning. There's two priesthoods, Melchizedek and Aaronic or Levitical. And then he kind of clarifies that the Melchizedek priesthood is not its official proper name. The real name of the Melchizedek priesthood in verse 3 is the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God. But verse 4, if we said that every time we said Melchizedek priesthood, we would repeat that phrase, Son of God, a great deal. So out of respect to the name of the supreme being and to avoid too frequent repetition, we don't call it by its real name, the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God. That's why the Lord would change it. But what does he change it to? And this is what I love about the Lord. He quite often names things after the model. The Abrahamic covenant did not originate with Abraham. It was given to Adam. It's given to all of us. But we call it the Abrahamic covenant because he's the model. He's the one that modeled every aspect of the covenant. He received every blessing and lived up to every responsibility. So the Lord, in essence, is waving his arm saying, if you want to understand this covenant, look at the life of Abraham. Abraham illustrates the covenant. Aaron illustrates the priesthood of Aaron. The Levites illustrate the Levitical priesthood. So we're going to change the name of the priesthood to a man who illustrates what the priesthood is for. And so the Lord says, it is named after Melchizedek because he was such a great high priest. Melchizedek will show you how to hold the priesthood, how to receive the priesthood, how to gain the blessings of the priesthood. Melchizedek is the model. Now, the thing I love about that is you can't turn to a single book and chapter and read the story of Melchizedek. He is scattered everywhere and yet kind of nowhere. There is no book that says, oh, that's the chapter where Melchizedek appears. If you're going to study Melchizedek, you have to go on a search which I think is symbolic. If you want to receive the blessings of the Melchizedek priesthood, whether you're male or female, whether you hold an office or you don't, if you really want to understand the Melchizedek priesthood, you have to go on a journey and on a search. So Mike, walk us through this journey that we're going to go on if we really want to gather everything we can about Melchizedek. Yep. He's scattered all over the place. And he is really an enigma to the literature of the Christians. He's a mystery in the Jewish texts. And if we didn't have the Book of Mormon, 
we would have a lot less. But we have a couple clear indications of who he is in the Bible. So big picture. And most of those came from Joseph Smith in the footnotes in the JST. Yeah. A lot of those were contributions. So if we didn't have the restoration of the gospel, we would know very little about Melchizedek. Yeah. But thanks to Joseph Smith's contributions and the Book of Mormon, we have a lot more. So just to begin with, I just want to talk about his even his name. So in Hebrew, it's a compound of two words, Melech and Zedek, but it's it's Malki Zedek. Now, Malki, what they what you do with the end of the Melech is you add that Yod, and it makes it possessive. So Malki is my king. That's what it is. And then Zedek is righteous. And so a really good translation of Malki Zedek is my king is righteous. Now, as someone who loves Jesus, that's a really cool word because Melchizedek represents Jesus. He's a type. And so I really like that. Now, Genesis 14, you might want to read that. That's where Abraham goes and he pays tithes to Melchizedek and he just kind of shows up and then he walks off and we're left going, well, who is this person? Because Abraham's the father of the three world religions, right? Islam and Christianity and Judaism. And then you read in Psalm 110, and this was given, we think, to the early kings, and yet it's kind of puzzling because look what it says. Verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion, rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power, in the beauties of of holiness from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. And then verse four, the Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And yet, if you go into the study of the Kings, as we have it in the Bible, the Bible that we have has been edited. There are no Kings to my reading that are Kings and priests. And yet this was a coronation text that was given to the Kings. So what does that tell me? Well, like Bryce said, go to the Book of Mormon, because at the beginning of the Book of Mormon, what do we have? We have a prophet who becomes a king and a priest. Nephi is a king and a priest. And not just one. We have a series of kings that are priests. For many, many, for hundreds of years, we have kings that are priests, and that's where Benjamin falls. Now, think about the symbolism. Benjamin, who is a king and a priest, has gathered his people in front of a tower. Yes. Are, I'm are all my these rings? I'm shaking my head, yes. Are yes. all these bells ringing, and all of a sudden we're beginning to see, oh, there is a strong connection between Melchizedek and King Benjamin in the Book of Mormon. Make that tie. Yeah, it's a big, big deal, because the king in first Israelite temple religion brought everybody together, just like we read in King Benjamin's address, and he put everybody under covenant, and he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is lost. It's lost in what I call the Jewish apostasy of the 7th century, right around Josiah's time, 640 to 609 BC. It's lost, and the, the editors take away the priesthood. And what I mean by that, take away the priesthood, they don't write in their story that the king is a king and a priest. So the priests are over here doing their own thing. They're shamaring and abetting at the temple, right? They're 
protecting and they're serving in the temple and the king's over here on the other hand and he's doing his thing. But in the Book of Mormon, at least with, with Nephi, he's doing both. Benjamin's doing both. They're bringing people together under covenant. That's first Israelite temple religion. But yet here's what's fascinating when you get to 330 BC, 330, 300 BC, and the Jews are translating the text into Greek. Part of it stays. So I'm just going to read this last part of verse four, starting with Sue, which is you. Sue e herus eston eona katatain taking Melchizedek. Translation You are a priest, a herus, into eston eona, into the eternities. Katatain taking Melchizedek, according to the order. Talking is where we get, I think, where we get um, taxonomy. What's categories. Yeah, categories. Categorize. Yeah, we categorize. Anyway, that's where we get that word. Katatain taking Melchizedek. After or according to the order of Melchizedek, you are a hyrus, a priest into the eternities. So this is what they read to the kings. The kings were a priest into the eternities. Now think about the temple. Think about the covenants we make. And that's this is just surface level one. We're just reading it in the text, right? Of This is what the text is saying. And this is all lost. I mean, nobody's talking like this. Prior to Joseph Smith, this stuff's gone. Joseph Smith translates the Book of Mormon, 1829. It's published to the world in 1830. He puts it out there. And my point is that Joseph's trying to establish a kingdom where kings and priests are going to go into that order, but not just in this life, but forever. So who is Melchizedek? There was a historian named Josephus that lived after Jesus. And according to his writing, he says that Melchizedek was the first person to ever build a temple. So now you have a king and a priest after the order of El Elyon or to the most high God. And yet Josephus says that he was the first to build a temple. He also describes him as a king and a priest and as an actual historical person. And then there was another individual named Philo, and he talked about Melchizedek as a righteous king because he had what he called, he executed orthos logos or right reasoning. Philo says that Melchizedek was such a good king because by his right reasoning, people wanted to do good because he was so good at explaining it. And he was so good at this that other people became righteous. He's mentioned a couple times in what we call the Qumran text. And what that is, is that's a group of people that lived outside of Jerusalem and they were doing Judaism a different way. And they had apocalyptic visions. I think a lot of their texts do hint towards this idea of a Messiah that's going to be a deliverer. A lot of their stuff has references to many of the things that we believe in Latter-day Saint theology, ideas of a, of a redeemer, stuff about resurrection. They talk about Melchizedek twice, and it's both of the times it's connected with liberation, that after this order, this, this Melchizedek figure is going to be associated with their liberation in the coming age. And then the early Christians love Psalm 110. Because to them, they saw this as Jesus. And if you look at verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, one way to interpret this is that the Father said to Jesus, sit at my right hand. Anciently, it could have been read that Yahweh said to my Lord or the King, sit thou at my right hand, because the King was the manifestation of God's will sitting on the right hand of God. So there's a lot of ways you can play with that verse. And then finally, in Hebrews 7, the early Christians looked at the authority 
that Jesus had was greater than the authority that was used at the temple, clearly, because these guys were not getting along, especially when Hebrews was written. And so their interpretation was Jesus's authority that he had was greater than the authority in the temple. And so they use some of these ideas and textualize them in Hebrews 7, or Paul did, or however, you know, we've talked about authorship before. And so big picture, Melchizedek was a type for Jesus. And let's throw one more in. We really ought to at least reference the Book of Mormon and Alma 13. We have to. Because that's such a gem that gets gets restored in the Book of Mormon. In verse 34, Alma is in the city of Ammoniah, which is wicked and will be destroyed. And he says, this city is like the city that Melchizedek presided over. You are like the people in the days of Melchizedek. So Alma 13, verse 14, humble yourselves even as the people in the days of Melchizedek, who was also a high priest after this same order which I've spoken. And then he starts talking about what did Melchizedek do? Verse 17, his people waxed strong in iniquity and abominations. Yea, they had all gone astray. They were full of all manner of wickedness. Now, Melchizedek, having exercised mighty faith, received the office of the high priesthood according to the holy order of God, did preach repentance unto his people. And his, I'm interjecting here into the Book of Mormon, his influence, his kindness, his consistent ministering, his love of the people, his passionate and fiery words, his sermons, all of that, the way he taught and lived caused the people to repent. And Melchizedek did establish peace in the land. He turned a city that was wicked into a place of peace. Now, Alma's saying that to the Ammoniahites to say, we can turn this city around. We can. We can make this city a place of peace if we yield to the Spirit and become righteous. And he was saying that's what Melchizedek did in his city. So is it safe to say, Mike, that the purpose of the Melchizedek priesthood, as illustrated by Melchizedek himself, is to minister unto others, to serve them, and bless them, and invite them into the order that will take them into the eternities and make themselves a king forever. I think that's exactly what's going on. We put all this stuff in the show notes if you want to pull on this, because we're summarizing greatly. But yes, I think that everything you said with Alma 13 is also tied into some of the early Christian texts talked about that he was deified that Melchizedek became like God. Margaret Barker talks a lot about this. Like you said, he built a a city. He was a righteous king. And then in the new year, they would recreate the creation. And they would talk about the natural order and talk about how the world is to be renewed by following just principles. So everything Alma 13 saying, so much more than what's in the Bible And it starts off with just that first couple of verses in section 107, where the Lord is basically saying, hey, this is what we're going to call it and why. And I love that it's called the Order of Melchizedek, and I love that even it stays in the Greek, according to the order, katatain taking Melchizedek. It's just a beautiful thing because that order is why we have priesthood. In other words, if God's going to establish his kingdom, there has to be order. So briefly... Hierarchy. Hierarchy comes from a couple of words. And those words, and we just mentioned one of them, herus, that's where we get the word priest. 
and arche, which is chief or beginning or origin or sovereign. And so if you put herus and arche together, you get hierarchy, and a hierarchy is basically the rank in the sacred order. And so to understand hierarchy is to understand how we're to rule, how are we to have order in the kingdom, as in quorums, like this quorum is over this quorum, and why? We must have order. And if we think about this, we do this, don't we, every time we have stake and ward conference and general conference, we're sustaining, we're basically saying, we're back to bowing the scepter, by raising our hands and sustaining, we're saying, this is the order that has been established, right? And by linking it to Melchizedek, I think the beauty of section 107 is it portrays the hierarchy of the priesthood and links it to Melchizedek. As if to say, look, the the hierarchy in the church isn't to push people down and to be better than them and to rise above them and to mock them for being below you. The purpose of the hierarchy is to invite them up and invite them to a higher way. So there's a hierarchy so that we can rise to God. There's a very different approach than the world sometimes uses hierarchy to push people down. That's a really good distinction. So in all of this, there seems to be an invitation up, an invitation to rise up, not necessarily in the offices of the hierarchy, but rise up in the order so that I can enter into the presence of God and be a king and a priest someday. That's I, I just... I think it's significant that we tie hierarchy with Melchizedek, because Melchizedek's whole purpose was to invite people into an order rather than push people down and rule over them. So I think that's important. I think it's important to talk about because, and we talked about this with David Whitmer, but the early Protestants, they came out of Catholicism and they said, we don't want popes. We don't want potentates. We kind of want to do our own thing. And I get it. They were avoiding hierarchy. Because we've learned from sad experience that it's the nature and disposition of all men. As soon as they get a little authority, they will exercise unrighteous. And yes, that's what hierarchy can do. And so it's natural to resist hierarchy. So they're coming out of this, but at the very beginning, we talked about this with section 20, where the Lord says, you're the first elder, Joseph. Oliver, you're the second elder. And so now the authority is going to be dispersed, and it doesn't happen overnight. The Quorum of the Twelve... They don't ascend to the second highest quorum as far as an authority over all the church right away, but they do in the Nauvoo period. But this begins the order of the ascendancy of the Twelve, establishing distinctions between the First Presidency, the Twelve, and the Seventy. And what do we do with the Standing High Councils? There were two of them. There was one in Kirtland and one in Missouri. So it answers those, and it talks about those, and it draws those lines. And Bryce and I are not going to lay out all the duties of everything. We're kind of doing big picture stuff. Again, let me remind you that there's two priesthoods in the church. There's a hierarchical priesthood that exists in the organization of the church. We've got a first presidency at the top down to a member at the very bottom. But then there's a patriarchal priesthood in which there is no hierarchy. There's no, I'm more important than I'm above you or I'm below you. In the patriarchal priesthood, it's not a matter of hierarchy. So in the church, we practice hierarchical priesthood, offices and wards and stakes and different levels. But let's not forget that all of that is scaffolding to build the most important unit in the church, which is the home where we practice patriarchal priesthood. Everything that we talk about in terms of hierarchy 
is to bless the family and put the family in its divine place. So listen as we as the Lord describes the purpose of the hierarchy, the purpose of the Melchizedek priesthood, and think in terms of what is the end product here. It's not necessarily a ladder upon which we designate each member of the church. It's scaffolding to build something much more important, and that is the family. Yeah, we want to bring them home. So look at verse 18. The power and authority of the higher or Melchizedek priesthood is to hold the keys of all the spiritual blessings of the church, to have the privilege of receiving the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, to have the heavens open unto them, to commune with the general assembly and church of the firstborn, and to enjoy the communion and presence of God the Father and Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So the purpose for my reading, Bryce, I would say, is to bring us into his presence. Yeah. Yeah. It is possible here to get obsessed with the destination. And there are people out there, there are members of the church who obsess over the destination, and that is to commune with the Father and Jesus the mediator. And they speak very often about calling an election and seeing Jesus in the flesh. And they love to quote, there's numerous verses in the Doctrine and Covenants that they love to point to and say, see right there. That's the destination of the Melchizedek priesthood is to see Jesus. And it's like they become obsessed with the destination rather than focusing on the journey and the common lot of the church. I don't think the common lot of the average church member is going to allow them to see the Savior in the flesh before they die. I don't know if that's really, our, like you said, our lot. I don't even know how needful is that. In other words, if if that's happening, where's faith? And And also, the accountability factor goes way up, right? Yeah, and I've known so many wonderful Latter-day Saints that if that happened before they died, man, they kept it secret and they didn't say anything, which may be the case. But in my experience and in my observations of the people that I know and love, that isn't something worth obsessing over, that I have to see Jesus in the flesh before I die. And Bryce, you and I have both read section 93, verse 1. We know that's the promise, that if you forsake your sins, we will see his face and know that he is. I think ritually we do that. In holy places, ritually, we ascend into God's presence, but I don't necessarily know if I'm really helping as a teacher, if I'm hammering that because my class is sitting there thinking, well, we're just all garbage because we haven't beheld the face of God. And so I I have to just say, I don't have all the answers. I see that this is section 84 where it says, this is what Moses strove to do is to make that happen. And I think that is the, the striving of all true religion is to bring us back into God's presence. I get that. But I also see that, like you said, that's not the common experience of Christianity or the common experience of members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. So I want to have balance as a teacher. And the problem with obsessing over that is we kind of create this expectation that there's an exclusive club that only certain members belong to and that I don't belong to that club. And that runs counter to so many principles that we find in the gospel. Jesus has his arms outstretched. I think the focus of our lives is supposed to be on helping those around us, meeting them where they are. Melchizedek took a wicked people, met them where they were, and lifted them up. 
Now, if it if that journey didn't end in every one of them seeing the Savior's face in the flesh, was Melchizedek a failure? Not even. Not even close. And what if they were on that journey and they died? Have they lived a successful life? I think the common lot of the church is to move in that direction and not stress over when or if that happens in the flesh, but to say to my neighbor, how can I help you get there? How can I help you take the next step in your life? Isn't that what God is all about? Not obsessing over what's happening to me and the blessings that are coming into my life. Yeah. And yet there were experiences that people had where some of the early members of the church saw really awesome things, especially in the Kirtland period before the Kirtland apostasy. And so I sit in that space where I realize Joseph does introduce some people to the father and the son, but I don't think, like you said, that's the common thing today. So we are hearing you. There are individuals out there that are saying, hey, you are not talking about calling election. You are not talking about seeing the face of God. The sections are saying those things, but we're also sitting in the space of where we are as a church and collectively the general lot of the experiences of the Latter-day Saints, those that walk the plains to those that live today across the world. I love this quote by Elder McConkie that he gave right here at the University of Utah many years ago, and it's a beautiful talk called The Probationary Test of Mortality, and we'll give you a link in the show notes. You can read the whole talk because I was so happy to find it. But in this talk, he says, we don't need to get a complex or a feeling that you have to be perfect to be saved. You don't. There's only been one perfect person, and that's the Lord Jesus. But in order to be saved in the kingdom of God and in order to pass the test of mortality, what you have to do is get on the straight and narrow path. And then he says, I'm saying you don't have to be perfect to be saved. If you did, no one would be saved. The way it operates is this. You get on the path that's named the straight and narrow path. You do it by entering the gate of repentance and baptism. The straight and narrow path leads from the gate of repentance and baptism a very great distance to a reward that is called eternal life. If you're on the path and pressing forward and you die, you'll never get off that path. There is no such thing as falling off the straight and narrow path in life to come. And the reason is, is that this life is the time that is given to men to prepare for eternity. Now is the time and the day of your salvation. And so if you're working zealously in this life, though you haven't fully overcome the world and you haven't done all that you hoped you might do, you're still going to be saved. Wait, would you read that sentence one more time, Mike? I think we need to shout this one from the rooftops. Though you haven't fully overcome the world, and you haven't done all that you hoped you might do, you're still going to be saved. You don't have to do what Jacob said, go beyond the mark. You don't have to live a life that's truer than true. You don't have to have an excessive zeal that becomes fanatical and becomes unbalancing. And then he talks about what you do have to do by staying in the mainstream of the church and living the gospel and paying your tithing and serving. And then he says this, he says, if you're on the straight and narrow path when death comes, because this is the time and the day appointed, this the probationary state, you will never fall off the path. And for all practical purposes, your calling and election is made sure. Now to me, I read that, Bryce, that's my religion. I don't have to focus on, oh my goodness, I haven't seen the face of God. I must be this horrible Latter-day Saint. I think the vast majority of us are just journeying down that straight and narrow path and need constant help and pick-me-ups. And so the Melchizedek priesthood is the power on earth designed to lift the entire city as close to God as we possibly can.
Now, there's one thing I'd really like to do when I get to section 107 to illustrate a very important principle of the gospel that the Lord allows humans to run this church. And Mike has talked about this, the gold and the clay principle. And I love to take us to the Jaredites in the Book of Mormon, where the Lord, they had two problems in crossing the sea and building their barges. They had an air problem and they had a light problem. Now, those are not of equal danger. If they don't solve the light problem, they can still get to America. But if they don't solve the air problem, those barges become corpses and they die. And so notice the Lord handles those two situations differently. Sometimes we're in an air situation where the danger is extremely high and the Lord is very specific and he steps in and says, let me take care of this. That's the gold principle where it's mostly God. And he steps in and says, let me fix this. For example, here's the Book of Mormon. Here are the doctrines. I'm not going to just let you figure out what doctrines are true. You're not going to come up with the plan of salvation. You're not going to establish the truth of the doctrines. That's all God. That's the gold principle. This is an air situation. Here's the Book of Mormon. Those are the truths that will get you to salvation. Now, before you go on, Bryce, I just got to say, there's clay in the Book of Mormon, too. The early introduction, that was written by the genius of man, and it had some things that weren't perfect. And the other part of clay is, we lost part of the manuscript. God allowed that to happen. So Even even, in the process of establishing the goal, there's a little bit of clay. Yeah, so I just throw that out there to say, there's always, it's always there, isn't it? Yeah, but God holds it on upon himself to take care of the air situations. I will solve the air problem. So, brother of Jared, drill a hole in the top and the bottom, and when you need air, unstop the hole. And then the brother of Jared comes back with a light problem, and the Lord says, this is on you. This is the clay side. But even on the clay side, Mike, once the brother of Jared comes up with the idea to do the stones, who touches them and makes them glow? Perfect, yeah. So even on the clay side, there's a little bit of gold. Even on the gold side, there's a little bit of clay. Absolutely. It's this magic relationship between divine and human. And it's never a clear line. There's always a little bit of fuzziness in the line. Which, by the way, I think that, I think that's kind of cool. I love that because I love, I relish in the journey. Yeah. So section 107 has one of those beautiful gold and clay moments. For many, many years, we didn't quite have the quorums of the Melchizedek priesthood set right. Those of you who are my age or older remember the days when there were 70s in the wards. There were men ordained to the office of 70 who were presided over by the bishop who was a high priest. We didn't quite have that exactly organized the way we do today. We have tweaked or changed or, I don't know, maybe it was even a correction or an alteration, but the way we had the offices of the Melchizedek priesthood organized is not the way we have them organized today. And that's okay. And it took a Boyd K. Packer and section 107 to make that connection. I am going to read from Elder Packer's biography by Lucille Tate, Boyd K. Packer, A Watchman on the Tower, and we'll put this in the show notes so that you can read it. Another area of concern with which many of the former church leaders had worked, and to which Elder Packer and the brethren gave concerted attention, was that of the proper role of the place of the seventy. 
their concern came at a time when even with the combined support groups of assistance to the 12 regional representatives and the 70, they were taxed to the limit in administering what had become a worldwide church. The need to provide increasing general authority leadership for the church had become crucial. In order to meet the challenge, the brethren sought the will of the Lord. So there's the gold principle. The Lord's going to help us. But watch this clay come in. I'm going to quote again. Quote, All knew that the 70, as they were organized on a stake level, could not fill their prophetic roles. They must somehow be brought into closer compliance with the scriptural charter. One who had given much thought and study to those scriptures and to the solutions they surely must contain was Elder Boyd K. Packer. See, that suggests that we had it wrong. It does suggest that we had it wrong. And yet, I also look at it and think, growth? Yeah. Where there's a change. I notice in the church, sometimes we have the tendency to kind of throw shade at the past administration and say, we're so glad that President so-and-so has it right. And then sometimes I think, Maybe it's where it needs to be for now, and yet, like what you said, the Lord also allows us to try to to work through it. And so I don't know. I don't know either. Uh, Let me continue the quotation. He felt both the urgency and the weight of the matter. Finally, his brethren assigned him to prepare a document briefing the discussions and decisions of the church leaders with reference to the 70 from the beginning. So Boyd K. Packer was assigned by the First Presidency to prepare a brief about the history of the 70. As the work progressed, and in a marvelous way, unexpected visitors dropped by his office to leave material that might interest him. One brought notes from the personal papers of President George Albert Smith on the 70. Another, President Harold B. Lee's personal notes on the same subject. Laboring in faith and diligence, Brother Packer continued the quest to know the Lord's will. He studied and pondered the messages of Doctrine and Covenants 107 that specifically pertained to the 70. As he read and reread, verse 10 suddenly stood out as if it had been newly placed there. Now he's going to quote Doctrine and Covenants 107.10, quote, High priests after the order of the Melchizedek priesthood have a right to officiate in their own standing under the direction of the presidency in administering spiritual things and also in the office of elder, priest, teacher, deacon, and member. Elder Packer tells of the impact upon him. Now the book is quoting Elder Packer. Quote, It suddenly occurred to me that that was a verse on the 70 that should be added to the others. The reason it had never been considered was that it did not mention the 70. And the significance of it was that it did not mention the 70. I'm going to interject. This is Bryce, meaning he realized that high priests can't officiate in the office of 70. The fact that 70 wasn't there suggests that a high priest cannot officiate in the office of 70. So back to the quotation from Elder Packer. I took it to Bruce McConkie first and read it to him in that context. It was the first time that he had ever seen it in that light, because it very declaratively said that a high priest could not officiate in the office of a 70. Traditionally, the order of priesthood leadership had been listed, deacon, teacher, priest, elder, 70, high priest, capital S, 70, apostle. 
Now the brethren could see how the Lord intended it to be. Deacon, teacher, priest, elder, high priest, 70, apostle. With the 70 being listed only once. In that sequence, all scripture with reference to the 70 quickly fell into place. From that newly highlighted scripture, there came to the brethren the understanding of the Lord's will relative to the 70. The call of a 70 was not a local priesthood call. Rather, it was henceforth to be as the Lord had said, the 70 form a quorum equal in authority to that of the 12 special witnesses or apostles. The Lord further stated that the 70 were, quote, to act in the name of the Lord under the direction of the 12 or the traveling high councils. He's again quoting section 107. This was to be in the same sense that the 12 act in the name of the Lord under the direction of the first presidency. Thus, the brethren through revelation to one of their number, meaning Boyd K. Packer, were provided with the answer. As an obedient instrument in the hands of the Lord and under direction of the brethren, Elder Packer, with his diligent study and spiritual effort, became a significant factor in the changes that followed. In perfect unity, the twelve presented their recommendations to the First Presidency. After much prayer and deliberation, the prophet and his counselors began to implement orderly changes relative to the Seventy. On October 1st, 1976, the first quorum of the 70 was expanded by the release of all 21 assistants to the 12. And their call as 70s, and by the calling of four new 70s, President Kimball stated that the establishment of the first quorum of the 70 as one of the three governing quorums of the church defined by Revelation was a great milestone in priesthood government at the general level and will make it possible to handle efficiently the present heavy workload and to prepare for the increase in expansion and acceleration of the work, anticipating the day when the Lord will return to take charge of His kingdom and church. That's the end of the quotation from Boyd K. Packer's biography. And I love that, that the Lord allowed us to figure that out, that Boyd K. Packer went to the scriptures that the Lord had given many years earlier, and he discovered that we needed to make a tweak, a change. And today we have organized the quorums of the priesthood differently based on that understanding. And so the Lord allows that balance between air situations and light situations, between moments where the Lord says, this is what you need to do, and I'm not going to let you mess this up, versus what do you want to do to get light in your vessels, brother of Jared? You figure this one out. And there's that beautiful balance. Now, bringing that to our individual lives and the church today, we have to understand that there's many things that the Lord allows us to figure out, that the first presidency receives revelation, and sometimes the church is in an air situation where the Lord says, this is what you're going to do. But we're not always in that situation. And sometimes the Lord says, figure this one out. So I think that goes right in line with verse 79. 
This is given to the presidency of the church. The presidency of the council of the high priesthood, I'm going to call that the first presidency, shall have power to call other high priests, even 12, to assist as counselors, and thus the presidency of the high priesthood and its counselors shall have the power to decide upon the testimony according to the laws of the church. And in the setting of section 107, you kind of got to go look in the verse 78. It talks about dealing with the most difficult cases. And then you go to verse 80. This is the highest council of the church, the first presidency, and a final decision upon controversies and spiritual matters. Now, I will say there's a lot of times they make administrative changes. They do things like, hey, we're not going to have a Saturday night meeting. Now we're going to have a Saturday night meeting. Well, did God change his mind? Assuming it was an air situation and God simply dictates everything. Right. I think that the president of the church has the power to decide. Uh, on social media, people get so fired up over these things, and I just think, oh, if we could just teach that, that the president of the church has the power to decide. And then and it, we add verse 81. There is not any person belonging to the church who is exempt from this council of the church. Meaning once the first presidency decides, we as a church are subject to that decision. They have that right to say, we're going to do it this way. Yeah. Adding to what you're talking about, Bryce, with respect to quorums, the distinctions being moved, the quorum of the 12, they don't rise in ascendancy to the second most powerful quorum in the church until Nauvoo, really. Like, in other words, if you were on the high council in Kirtland, you had more authority when the 12 visited. But then when we get to Nauvoo, that changes. Is that really important? No, but it's good for us as Latter-day Saints to know this history because the Quorum of the Twelve, over time, ascended to the point where they have the authority over all the church, with the exception of the First Presidency. And so in verse 23 of this revelation in, one, in section 107, it says the Twelve Traveling Counselors are called to be the Twelve Apostles. And then in verse 24, it says they form a quorum equal in authority and power of the three presidents. And yet, the Twelve, in this setting, in 1835 did not have authority in the stakes of Zion. So Kirtland had a stake of Zion, Missouri had a stake of Zion. And if you look in the minutes to the meetings at the Grand Council at Kirtland in May of 1835, it's very clear that they were to not have the right to go into Zion or in any of the stakes where there's a regular high council established to relegate any matters pertaining thereto. What I mean by that is if you were the stake president in Missouri, the Quorum of the Twelve is not going to tell you how to run things. That all changed in the Nauvoo period. And so when Joseph dies, the president of the Quorum of the Twelve is now, like, and this is where those verses about equality come in. When the president of the First Presidency dies, then the First Presidency is dissolved and the governing body is the Quorum of the Twelve. And so there are some great quotes in the show notes by Joseph Fielding Smith and others talking about that's what that means when it talks about their equal in authority. Because it kind of doesn't make sense if you read it and you read that the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve and the Seventy are all equal. Well, if everybody is equal, then who's in charge? Well, the answer is no one. And so they're not all equal. In other words, they're equal if that other one is dissolved, if that makes any sense. So if the First Presidency is dissolved, the Twelve they now have the authority. I think historically we need to know this because we live in a world of change. And I, I think when President Nelson says, hey, things are going to be changing, I think it's good for us to see this and realize that we sit in a church that since 1830 has experienced some of these changes. And I think sometimes we get rigid in our orthodoxy. We get so rigid or in that orthodox position of everything has to be static 
And then it really throws us for a loop. And yet one of our own articles of faith says we believe all that God has revealed. We believe that he does now reveal wonderful things. And then it adds this wonderful truth. We will. We believe that God will yet reveal many wonderful things. That's it. And then John Taylor doesn't have a section in the Doctrine and Covenants, but he did receive revelations. And there's one revelation that John Taylor received in 1883 that has not been added to the Doctrine and Covenants, but it very well could be. It says the following. The Lord says through John Taylor, Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither be ye concerned about the management and organization of my church and priesthood and the accomplishment of my work. Fear me and observe my laws, and I will reveal unto you from time to time, through the channels that I have appointed, everything that shall be necessary for the future development and perfection of my church, for the adjustment and rolling forth of my kingdom, and for the building up and the establishment of my Zion. For ye are my priesthood, and I am your God, even so. Amen. I love how that's worded, that the Lord will reveal from time to time through the channels he's appointed everything that we need for the adjustment and rolling forth of my kingdom. This is a living church, just like bone is living. I right now have two children in braces, and it is fascinating to think about what's happening in their mouth. We are moving solid teeth around through bones. We are adjusting the bones so that we can adjust this mouth. Well, the church, like bone, is a living organism, and it will grow and adjust to meet the future needs. And I love that John Taylor just simply pointed out that it will happen from time to time as it's needed. So there's one more little golden nugget here, this, this meeting of Adam in the Valley of Adam on Diamond. Now, there's a whole lot of mystique going out there about a future meeting at Adam on Diamond and, and being called back to Missouri to a secret meeting. And you hear rumblings about this all throughout the church, that, that there's going to be a meeting at Adam on Diamond. But I remind you the pattern of the Lord is, has been and shall be. 3 Nephi 23, verse 3, the Lord quotes Isaiah and says many of his writings have been and shall be. The Lord is a God of patterns. And one of the best ways to figure out what shall be is to look at what has been. May I suggest that one of the best ways to understand the future meeting at Adam on Diamond is to understand the past meeting at Adam on Diamond and that it will follow that same pattern. So look at the simplicity of this meeting. Starting in verse 53 of section 107, three years previous to the death of Adam, he gathers and then he lists the priesthood leaders. So will there be a a gathering of priesthood leaders at Adam on Diamond? Yes, but right in the middle of verse 53, who else is there? with the residue of his posterity. It wasn't just a meeting of priesthood leaders. It was a meeting of the whole church. Now, can you think of a time when priesthood leaders have a meeting as well as the whole church has a meeting? Kind of sounds like general conference. So Adam calls his leaders, his people, into the valley of Adam on Diamond. And then verse 54 the Lord appears. 
the Lord administers unto Adam, and then Adam prophesies about his people. There's the pattern. I would suggest that the people who should see Jesus first are his current covenant people. Those who are currently under covenant to obey his gospel. This is that meeting. There will be a gathering of the Latter-day Saints. Adam will be there. The Lord will appear. Adam will prophesy. Or maybe Adam will summarize this time. That's what happened in the Valley of Adam on Diamond, and I would suggest that that's what will happen in the Valley of Adam on Diamond. It is a gathering of his people to hear him, and Adam will be there. It's really cool. I, I really do like these verses, talking about Adam and what he did, and it really ties into Psalm 110. I mean, if you look at Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand. What do we have? You got verse 54 of section 110. The Lord appeared and they rose up and blessed Adam. So think about this. The congregation stands in the council and they called him Michael, the prince. And the Lord administered comfort to Adam. This is all tied into kingship. And he said to him, I have set thee to be at the head. We're back to hierarchy again. So what is he? He's a prince over them forever. Who? his family. And he stood up in the midst of the congregation. And then he predicted what would happen, all the things that would happen to us posterity unto the latest generation. And all this stuff is lost in traditional Christianity. This idea of Adam foretelling what's going to happen in the last days of Adam calling his family together. These things are lost to us, but they weren't. If you lived you know, in the first couple hundred centuries of Christianity. So though this is not found in the Old Testament, the idea that Adam called his posterity together shortly before he dies and he blessed them, this was widely accepted in early Christianity and in Judaism. And here, Joseph Smith once again is sitting in this tradition of these texts and these religions, and he's talking about things of which the Bible is silent. So I just want to reference a couple of them. There's a great document, and we don't know when it was produced. My take on it, it was probably produced in the first couple hundred centuries after Jesus, and it's called the Testament of Adam. And it's found in what's called the Old Testament pseudepigrapha. And in this text, Adam is pulling his sons together, and it's a conversation that he's having with Seth. And you can read the whole thing in the show notes. I'm just, for time, going to pull some of this out so you can hear some of the gist of what he says. And so it reads as follows. Adam said to his son, Seth, you have heard, my son, that God is going to come into the world after a long time. He will be conceived of a virgin and he will put on a body and be born like a human being and grow up as a child. Think about grace for grace, what we talked about in section 93. He will perform signs and wonders. He will walk on the waves of the sea and he will rebuke the winds. And so then he talks about a conversation that he had with God. And he says, I listened to him. And I said, why, Lord? And he said, you have listened to the words of the serpent and you and your posterity will be food for the serpent. But after a short time, there'll be mercy upon you because you were created in my image and I will not leave you to waste away in Sheol. And Sheol is the word for like Hades or the underworld. 
For your sake, I will be born of the Virgin Mary, and for your sake, I will taste of death and enter into the house of the dead. And for your sake, I will make a new heaven, and I will be established over your posterity. So this is Adam talking about his conversation with Jesus. Like, this is, this is cool stuff. After three days, while I'm in the tomb, I will raise up the body I received from you, and I will set you at the right hand of my divinity. Look at section 107. Look what it says. I'm going to establish you, verse 55, as a prince over them. So back to the Testament of Adam. I will set you at the right hand of my divinity. This is right out of section 107. And I will make you a God, just like you want it to be. And I will receive favor from God, and I will restore you and your posterity, that which is the justice of heaven. Now, that is so cool. One of the things I like about it is it's doing the things that Joseph Smith is talking about doing, that he gathered his children together, that he told them that would happen, that he testified of Christ, and that they rose up and blessed him in verse 54 and verse 55, that he said at the head. Now, Joseph Smith hasn't read the Testament of Adam. How could yet he it's have? right here in section 107. Yeah, it, Joseph sits in this tradition of early Christianity talking about these things. And so in closing, big picture, remember the purpose of the priesthood. To me, it really is about family. And if you make that personal, can you imagine a husband and a wife, a father and a mother taking that spirit of Adam saying that the order of the priesthood is to take my family and bring them into this order of Melchizedek so that we someday are united as an eternal family. That's the whole purpose of the Melchizedek priesthood, is to unite families, to help us overcome challenges and wickedness and sin and transgression and make us better people step by step. I love that we end with Adam as a symbol of a father over his family. It's beautiful. Well, with that, we thank you for spending your time with us, and we will see you next week when we cover... The dedication of the Kirtland Temple and the aftermath, the coming of Elijah, a prophecy thousands of years in the making will be fulfilled. It's kind of a big deal, so we'll see you next time. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.